It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What's up? Welcome into Best on the Board, presented by BetMGM. Michael Beller here with you as we sit down to record this episode. It is Tuesday, March 29th, so just a couple of days away from the final four. We've got an episode here in this feed previewing Kansas and Villanova, so uh, be sure to check that out. But that's not the episode you're listening to right now. No, no, no. We're on the other side of the bracket where Duke and North Carolina meeting for the first time in NCAA tournament history. It's the final four. It's Coach K's final season. Just storylines galore in this matchup. And we've got the perfect person to find him. Brendan Marks here with us. Brendan is the Duke beat writer here at The Athletic, and also the North Carolina beat writer here at The Athletic. So, I mean, uh, Brendan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I venture to say that there's maybe no college basketball journalist in the country who knows these two teams, combined knowledge of these two teams more than you. So this is, I mean, this is this is your game, man. Yeah, if, if I don't know what's going on in this game, then I am uh, <laughs> I am severely out of my element. But no, I mean, I somebody asked me uh, after it was clear that this was what the matchup was going to be, how many games I'd seen combined between mm-hmm. these two teams. And, you know, I'm, I'm at well over 50 games between these two. I mean, so it's uh, I, I, I don't I still don't know what to expect, though. So that's what makes this thing a great a great event. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's great, and that's exactly the expertise that we're looking for here on Best on the Board as we are getting our wagers in order for these two games. We won't necessarily ask you to do that, but we will dig into that expertise that you have for these two teams. So let's start it out with the two games specifically that these teams played against one another. You had a blowout win for Duke at North Carolina back in February and then of course the game we all remember pretty darn well at the end of or the end of the regular season the beginning of March North Carolina goes in to Cameron and spoils Coach K's final game there and what wasn't I wouldn't necessarily classify a blowout but certainly what ultimately turned into a comfortable win for the Tar Heels is there anything you draw from those two games that we can apply to this third matchup or are we just totally wiping the slate clean? No, I, I definitely think there are things you can take away, probably more so from the second matchup than from the first one. I think, you know, in, in the case of the first one, you think back to the beginning of February, and, and sort of the key to that game was North Carolina got in some early foul trouble with Armando Baycott. He picked up two fouls trying to defend Paolo Bancaro in like the first three or four minutes and, and basically had to ride the pine for the rest of the first half. And that let Duke sort of, you know, build out this gigantic lead, which which they were able to maintain for the rest of the game. So that obviously I think is one thing where North Carolina has learned like, hey, we cannot afford to have that happen again. And if anything, you know, this is a team that, that has, it, it still has that same dev problem that it had in that game. You know, this is a North Carolina team whose starters have become known as the Iron Five because Hubert Davis is basically playing them all 30 plus minutes a game. So mm-hmm. that foul trouble remains in the forefront of their minds. And the other thing from that first game was AJ Griffin for Duke. Um, you know, that was one of his best games probably in a Blue Devils uniform. He had almost 30 points, was hitting absolutely everything. And, um, 
North Carolina's defense just didn't have any real answer for him. So it'll be interesting for me to see, okay, does North Carolina, how do they try and do that? A.J. Griffin was pretty quiet in the second game. Leaky Black for North Carolina, the only four-year scholarship senior on this team, he's the guy who is like the defensive stopper. That first game, he wasn't on A.J. A.J. went crazy. The second game he was, was able to contain him a lot better. So I'm interested to see how that plays off. But um, And then for the second one, Obviously, it's all the hype. You know, it was the buzz. It was the hoopla. It was the mm-hmm. storylines. Being able to deflect that is going to be huge for both these teams because they're, they're both feeling the pressure right now. They know what's at stake. They know what's at stake in terms of the title game, but also, you know, bragging rights back home, bragging rights, heck, really for the rest of eternity, the rivalry. So, so I would say even someone who's been a casual North Carolina watcher this season can tell that they've been a different team from, you know, maybe – February and on, and even someone who just knows how to use like a, a Ken Palm page or a, a ESPN, you know, results page can just look at the results and see that clearly something has been different for this team. Maybe even starting with just you know whether you want to mark benchmark it to uh, Virginia Tech win toward the end of January or something else in early February, just somewhere half what's been a tale of two halves, basically a tale of two seasons for this North Carolina team. Uh, you are much more than a casual observer of this North Carolina team. What has it been that's been so different for them uh, in the second half of the season and has them here in the Final Four? Yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of like a, a backwards sort of thinking about it. But basically, you know, North Carolina at the start of January loses two of its top seven players. It loses Anthony Harris and Dawson Garcia for the rest of the year. And, um, you know, the last game that Dawson played in was North Carolina's 20-plus point loss to Wake Forest in the middle of January. Since then, this has been a team that really has just had to, like I said, rely and, and ride these starters into the ground. But what that has done, obviously there's a fatigue factor there, but it has let all of these guys really take grasp of their roles. So um, there's there's no better example of that really than what Brady Manick has been able mm-hmm. to do. Manick was a four-year starter at Oklahoma, a career 35-plus percent three-point shooter, had a bunch of experience in the Big 12. And right now he's playing better than he ever did in four years in Oklahoma. You know, he is, he is, you know, shooting a 40-ish percent clip from three. Um, you know, he's been the second leading scorer on the team. Uh, if he doesn't foul out against, you know, Baylor, he easily could have 35, 30, I mean, who knows how many points in that game. So he, he has really, I think, come into his role as the stretch four on this team compared to having to split minutes with Dawson Garcia earlier in the year. Um, and, and along with him, it's sort of been a trickle-down effect. You know, with him hitting those threes, there's been more space for Armando Baycott underneath. With those two having their balance, there's been less attention that can be trained to North Carolina's guards. People can't be as aggressive trying to turn them over. Like, it's been a trickle-down effect, and everyone has sort of filled into those roles really nicely. And you know, the result you see is a team that, that really has only lost three times since that aforementioned Wake Forest loss. It's, it's been a, a, a tale of two halves, as they like to say. And a ridiculous run here for, for Manic certainly in the, in the uh, tournament and for this team. I mean, the 30-point win against uh, Marquette in the first round. You upset Baylor. You knock off UCLA. Take care of business against St. Peter's, uh, something that no one else obviously was able to do. And uh, just an incredibly impressive run for North Carolina to get to this point and be in the Final Four against Duke. Let's break this down on both sides. So let's first look Duke offense versus North Carolina defense. What are you zeroing in on? Yeah, so that's the area where North Carolina has really taken a lot of leaps. And and like I mentioned, Leaky Black is the guy who sort of sets the bar defensively for North Carolina. He is, uh, I would say, probably the best defensive perimeter player left in the tournament. I think he'll be the best wing defender in New Orleans this weekend. And because of that, it, it gives North Carolina some freedom, right? Like you have an eraser. So 
you know, if Leaky Black is on AJ Griffin, for example, like I would not expect AJ Griffin to have his normal output. If he's on Wendell Moore, if he's on, you know, he might even see some time on Jeremy Roach. You know, that's something that Hubert Davis did when North Carolina played Virginia. Rather than putting Leaky Black on a traditional wing of comparable size, he put him on the point guard and said, listen, if this guy's not able to go, none of you are able to. And so I think there is some element there with Duke and uh, Jeremy Roach being a similar boat. So Leaky Black is the one guy who I'm watching. I'm seeing what matchup is he's drawing. And then secondly, Armando Baycott cannot get in foul trouble. And Duke has a litany of bigs who can go at him. Paolo Bancaro, Mark Williams, Theo John. They, you know, Those three guys, I'm, I'm not a math major, that's 15 fouls to Armando's five. <laughs> so it's imperative that he really is, is sound with his defense. He has to be aggressive. He can't just let Duke do whatever it wants inside. That's basically what Duke's formula was against Texas Tech and against Arkansas. So he's got to find a balance between aggressiveness defending and also not atta- uh, not you know committing silly ticky tacky fouls. I think he's capable of doing that, but you know for for North Carolina, I think those are probably the two most intriguing areas that I'm watching. Obviously, it's a team defensive concept, but those two individually are going to have a huge role in how Saturday shakes out. It's going to be really interesting that side of the game. I mean, that's you know that's for, for obvious reasons that that's what we're more focused on. Duke now the number one team in adjusted offensive efficiency on Ken Palm unseating Gonzaga, who had held that that spot for for a bulk of the season. Purdue had it early, but Gonzaga's had it for most of the year, and now with their early ish exit and Duke's run to the Final Four, Duke the number one team in adjusted offensive efficiency. As you said, North Carolina been just a, a phenomenal defensive team over the second half of the season. So that certainly is why or where we're going to be focused on uh, in this matchup for obvious reasons, but it's only half the game, and we know North Carolina, uh, an excellent, excellent three-point shooting team, a team that uh, wants to get out and, and play fast and certainly has the athletes to do so. What do you look at when you look at North Carolina offense versus Duke defense? Yeah, you know, I, I think, again, you know, this is a situation where you can look at some of the individuals and, and the ones who I would probably point to in this scenario are, like we just talked about, it's Brady Manick, you know. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating matchup because in the first game, when he was matched up with Paolo Bancaro, when, when Bancaro was defending Brady Manick, Brady Manick struggled. And in the second game, that was not the case. Brady Manick, despite having, you know, Paolo having a size advantage on him, a strength advantage on him, a quickness advantage on him, heck, probably a skill advantage on him. Brady was more than able to handle his own. You know, he was more than able to keep up. And so I think that'll be sort of a swing matchup. Paolo has been as good a player as Duke has had in the tournament so far. I voted him to be the West Regional MOP, which he ultimately won. I mean, he has been sensational uh, in Duke's four tournament games. He's averaging like 18 and a half points, seven rebounds, three or so assists. Um, you know, more than a steal a game, a block a game, and he's hitting more than 50% of his threes. So he has really just turned into a the player, I think, that a lot of people thought he was going to be all season, and that's carried over to the defensive end as well. You know, he got some critical blocks against Michigan State late down the stretch that allowed Duke yeah. to even make it out to the West Regional in San Francisco. So I look at that one a lot. And then for North Carolina offensively, it's about their guard play. You know, is Caleb Love first half UCLA Caleb Love or is he second half UCLA Caleb Love? Um, RJ Davis, I think, has shifted into more of an on ball role. You know, he's been more of a true point guard the last couple of weeks for this team, doing a lot more of the handling, a lot more of the uh, playmaking, a lot more of the passing. Whereas Caleb has sort of shifted to more of an off ball spot. He's been allowed to focus on shooting, focus on scoring. It's much easier. This is such a simple thing, but I keep it at the front of my mind that Hubert Davis said earlier in the year. If Caleb Love has the ball in his hands as a point guard, defenses know where he is. They have their eyes trained on him. Whereas if he catches the ball, there's a split second where the defender is not directly on him. And in that split second, he can either 
catch and shoot. He can catch and drive. He can catch and pass again. He can do a one pass. There's so many options he can do. And not having to have the defense trained on him all time has really allowed Caleb Love to sort of show out as the five-star prospect he was coming out of high school. So um, if North Carolina's guards can continue the shot-making pace that they've had you know, really through this NCAA tournament so far, and they can avoid getting turned over by Duke defensively, which is not a strong suit for the Blue Devils in terms of forcing steals. Um, I think North Carolina can still have success offensively. So there are, there's going to be a high-scoring game here. You know, at the end of the day, I believe both these offenses are going to be able to put the ball in the basket. And again, that's, that's only going to make this more exciting. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm not going to ask you to make any formal gambling picks on this episode, but that is exactly where I wanted to head next. This game has a total of 151.5. That's, that's a very high total. Uh, it's way higher than what we're seeing on the other side of the bracket where Villanova and Kansas are playing to a total of 132.5. So you know, if you want to throw an over-under out there, you can, but you do expect it to play to that 151.5 style of game. I definitely do. And I think that if you go back and you're looking at Duke in the NCAA tournament, Duke has had some of the tougher defensive matchups, I would say. You know, obviously Mm -hmm. they were going up against Texas Tech and Texas Tech had the number one defense in the country. Still dropped 78 points there. You know, dropped 78 against Arkansas, 85 against Michigan State. So, like, Duke has a precedent already for hitting about that 75-plus range. And for North Carolina, maybe not quite on the same, you know, side of things. Uh, Obviously they struggled a little bit offensively against St. Peter's, but – you know, I, I do think overall that we're going to come close to that total. I would not at all be surprised if it went over. Um, you know, I, I think that this is a game that there's probably going to be some foul shooting down the stretch mm-hmm. that always bumps it up a little bit too. So if if I were to, to pick one or the other, I would probably go with the over, but I definitely see it being more high scoring than less. Yeah, it's the way I'm leaning also. But, you know, just like you said, like, I mean, so I, I feel like the way that I'm thinking about it from that standpoint is that it's it's mostly – not mostly, I guess it's not the right way to say it, but I think about this from from the Duke offense point of view and the fact that they've been able to do what they've been able to do against those those teams. I mean, getting out and putting up 78 on Texas Tech in the way that they finished that game off, putting up the 85 against Michigan State in the way that they finished that game off. I mean, this is, this is an offense that uh, has earned that number one adjusted efficiency ranking on Ken Palm. And you've got so many shot makers, so many playmakers, and with the way North Carolina is going, the way that I think they can attack Duke defensively, it, it does feel like as simple as it feels to say that this game should play to the high scoring script it feels simple for a reason and the way these two offenses are going I do think that's ultimately the game that we see I also think it's a game that that we see as a close one four and a half the uh the the spread on this game uh we haven't seen either of the two games in the regular season play to a number like that but I think there's good reason to believe this one's a whole lot closer yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say. Like, you know, I, I would have to go back and look what the lines were for the previous two. But uh, I could tell I know for sure off the top of my head, because uh, this is something that we've been talking about in the gambling world. Uh, the regular season finale was Duke minus 11 and a half. Right. And like so we're talking about a seven point swing in a month. Right. Well, and that was that that feels a little rude to me, uh, even just, <laughs> right, you know, in the first place, like I, but then you saw how the first one went. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, I, I absolutely think this is going to be a closer game. Neither of these teams is, is going to want to go down easily. And like, 
here's the craziest thing to me and that I can't even fully wrap my head around. I don't know that I will be able to even once I see it happen on Saturday. Like both of these teams have played their best basketball this season the last four weeks. And I still fully believe that Saturday is going to be the best game that both of them play. Like for, for the stakes that there are in this game, like those cannot be ignored. Like mm-hmm. if you were a North Carolina or a Duke player in this game, you, you know how massive this is. Obviously it's for bragging rights and all that good stuff. It's for a shot in the national title. Like the Coach K stuff with it being his last year. Like if you're a North Carolina player, you want that double Trump card. You want to be able to say we knocked him out in his last home game and we ended his career. If you're a Duke guy, you want to be able to say, listen, we may have let that one go, but we got him back to the title for the story book send off. Like there, there, there is so much going into this. Just I can't imagine that it's not going to be a highly competitive, incredibly close game. Um, you know, I know some of the Elite Eight games turned out to be stinkers in terms of the mm-hmm. margins and in terms of excitement. I definitely don't think this one is going to be like it's we knew this one was in the late game even before it was guaranteed that this was going to be the matchup. <laughs> going to be, I think, an awesome, awesome final four day. Uh, expecting a lot of fun on the other side of the bracket, too, between Kansas and Villanova. But this one, as you say, Brenton, the nightcap for obvious reasons and should be a great way to wrap up final four Sunday with Duke in North Carolina. That is Brendan Marks joining us on Best on the Board. Duke and UNC beat writer at The Athletic. Brendan, uh, try to get yourself a little bit of rest. We're not, you're not going to be a lot. Let's just be honest about it. But at least a little bit as you head down to New Orleans for this game. It's a good thing I'm an expert in plane maps. I will be, uh, I will be, I will be doing a lot of dozing off when I'm in my window seat. But no, I, listen, we sleep after this. And if there was a week that I wanted to be up for and be ready for, mm-hmm. I mean, this, this will get me there no matter how tired I am. Oh, beautiful. Going to be a great game and a great Final Four day and hopefully a great three game, three games as we count our way down from four teams to one and the 2022 national champion. That's going to do it for this episode of Best on the Board. For Brendan Marks, I am Michael Beller. Thanks so much for listening. Good luck. Happy betting. We'll talk to you soon.